Uh, good morning. My name is Adam Petzl, and I currently serve as one of the elders here at Windsor. And as Katie said, this morning Randy is starting a new sermon series on marriage. And my wonderful wife, Kirsten, and I uh, have been given the opportunity to share with you just a little bit from our marriage story. So Adam and I were married on March, uh, March 4th, 2000, and it was truly a great day. We were filled with hope and dreams and desires for what our future would bring. And we were excited to share our vows with each other and to do so publicly in front of our friends and family. We had spent time and chosen our vows very purposefully and carefully and made promises to one another about what we wanted for our future lives together, about how we were going to love one another sacrificially, about how Christ would be the foundation of our, of our marriage, and how we wanted to create a household that would be a good witness to all those in our lives. We were excited to start our new lives together, and uh, we're ready to begin living out those promises. So, our marriage life began, and within the next four and a half years, we had three beautiful children, Laura, Anna, and Aaron. And life was a bit crazy, but we were able to get through much of that time with the help of our strong friendship with each other. More specifically, Adam and I have naturally worked well together, and we have attempted to speak to each other uh, respectfully, at least, to try, at least tried. And uh, we have been slow to anger. So these habits have been a source of, of strength in our marriage. I remember on one of our early uh, wedding anniversaries, uh, trying to be a romantic and going in the basement and looking for the old wedding bin and pulling out uh, our old wedding vows on the cards that we had used many years ago. Uh, but instead of bringing about feelings of romance, uh, they produced feelings of inadequacy. I had entered marriage with uh, so many high aspirations, but realized that making those visions a reality had been a lot harder than I thought. We had maintained a good friendship, but Kirsten and I hadn't gotten married just to be friends. I had been fortunate to grow up in a home uh, with parents who did love me, uh, but they were not very good at communicating with one another. Conflict was rarely dealt with in their marriage. Frustration, frustration led to verbal snipping at one another, and intimacy was scarce. I was sure that my marriage would be different, but was it? For example, I had taken with me into our marriage certain ideas of how I thought Kirsten should be as my wife. And like my family of origin, conflict was to be avoided. And now that we were married, my love for her was just to be assumed. Therefore, if we had an argument and I said, I'm sorry, then we really shouldn't need to talk about it anymore. <laughs> and if I worked hard providing for our family and taking care of for the kids, then really that should be enough for Kirsten to feel loved by me and feel close to me. Now, if you asked me outright if, if I thought these views were reasonable, um, um, you know, I would have said no. Yet when she didn't fulfill some of my unspoken expectations, I often fell into the same bad habits that I had promised I would avoid. About really avoiding or making light of any conflicts. Um, about harboring frustrations and, and not, not being open with them. And, uh, and keeping score on who was doing what around the house. I really did want to be a godly husband, uh, but as often happens in a marriage, I saw a lot of my imperfections come to light. But thankfully, God wasn't done with me yet. So starting off in our marriage, I too had visions of what I wanted to be like as a wife. I wanted to maintain a clean, well-running home, and I wanted to have energy left over to be cheerful for my husband when he came home from work. However, more often than not, um, I was overwhelmed and just functioning in survival mode. Much of the time, I felt more like a rundown mom than I did a wife. And Adam was good at fending for himself. However, this ability of his to work independently uh, for me, often, perhaps unfairly, left me feeling unnecessary and distant. I know that this is not exactly how I envisioned things to be, 
Yet as we had more children, I had less energy to try to figure out what was not going right. Now, despite our many shortcomings, after eight years, we really were in what could be called a good place. I mean, we did enjoy one another's company, we did work well together raising our kids, and we served here at church together. It was certainly acceptable, uh, but at the same time, it just wasn't quite what we had envisioned, and it wasn't quite what we had hoped for early on. I had resigned myself to the idea that certain frustrations would now always be part of our marriage, certain habits were now set in place, and that fully living up to the vows that we had made so many years earlier was just beyond my reach. I felt like basically we had reached the ceiling of, of what our marriage could be at that time. And right about that time, a friend of mine, Mike Wendling, uh, gave me a phone call and uh, asked if Kirsten and I would be interested in attending an eight-week uh, course called Dynamic Marriage. Sounded good um, until he said that there was nightly homework. <laughs> and uh, I mean, life, life was busy enough. I mean, there was, was it possible to squeeze anything more uh, into our schedules. Thankfully, I really do think the Holy Spirit gave us a nudge and, and, and convicted me. After all, uh, we had invested so much time in our kids, in our home, in my job. But how much time have we purposefully really invested in our marriage? So we jumped in class at the very last minute. And during those eight weeks, we probably talked to and prayed with each other more than we had in the previous whole year. Um, the class gave us very practical tools in a vocabulary to flush out some of the issues that we had. And some of the issues that we had, we hadn't even put a finger on yet. Just for one example, uh, before, I really thought that my role as a strong husband was to be totally self-reliant, uh, not really needing Kirsten to meet any of my needs. So I tended not to ask her for any help or really to let her know what I was thinking or things that she could do to, to help me or serve me. And that may not sound so bad, but during our conversations, I realized this was having ill effects. Uh, it, was, it was robbing Kirsten the opportunity to, to feel like a, a valued and, and good wife in our marriage. And I also realized that I was harboring a lot of resentments um, over unspoken expectations, some healthy, some not healthy, that, that I was just keeping inside. Now, prior to the class, I would have avoided talking about any of these issues with a 10-foot pole. Uh, but in the context uh, of the class, we were able to speak openly with one another and really let each other know uh, what kind of words and actions uh, made deposits and withdrawals in our relationship. And one of the most enjoyable aspects of the class was developing relationships with other couples. As the weeks went by, a sense of, of real community developed. The class was hard work, um, but each week we looked forward to the supportive fellowship that we had with our classmates. And of course, uh, the class was not a magic pill. Uh, in fact, since then, we've been trained as facilitators and even led a, a class here last fall. And I wish I could tell you that through all this work and investment and time that now our marriage is, is perfect and mm -hmm. ideal, but, but of course it's not. But now we do feel as though that, that ceiling uh, has been lifted. Um, and that we've been reminded that, that when we intentionally work on our marriage, that our marriage really can work better. And uh, we really look forward uh, to, to the fact that, that God isn't done with our marriage yet, that his vision uh, is well beyond even what ours was and our vows, and we look forward uh, to continue to, to work for his vision um, for our marriage. So we're taking the month of February here at Windsor Road uh, doing a series called The Vow. And church family, whenever I uh, do a marriage series here, I am very well aware of where we are as a congregation um, in terms of life. Um, 
And most of us here are like Adam and Kirsten, and we have good marriages, and we want exceptional marriages. Um, uh, some of us would just love to have a good marriage, because things aren't uh, going well, frankly. Um, and still others of us in uh, this room are either on the brink of divorce, or, uh, we, or just divorced, or we've been divorced, and uh, as well as those of us in this room whose spouses have died or are dying. Uh, and then there are some here for the first time. You just walked in today, and you had no idea. Uh, and the last thing that's on your mind is, you know, I don't need this. Um, and then there are those of you who are single, and you are um, really longing for marriage, and then others of you are happily single, and you are serving God with a focused intensity that would not exist otherwise. So what I'm trying to say is that we're all here at Windsor Road, and, and I want to say at the outset is that, church, there's, there's not a gospel for married people, and then a gospel for single people, and then a gospel for divorced people, and then a you know, gospel uh, for uh, uh, people who've lost their spouses. I mean, there's only one gospel. One gospel, and it applies to all of us, whatever our situation is. And so, what I want to do is take this month and spend some time uh, looking at some of the phrases that are typically heard in a wedding vow. And I want to start with the phrase, I take you. I take you. Now, I've done a uh, hundred weddings here in my almost 22 years at Windsor Road. And so when we do a wedding, I stand, I stand right here. Pulpit's not here, obviously, but the groom's here. And uh, the bride's here, and so uh, we all stand, and we say the prayer, and then we are seated, and we do have the giving the bride, and then I do my me marriage meditation. Then we get to the vow, and I uh, start with the groom, and I look over at the groom, and uh, I ask uh, um, Elmer to repeat after me, all right? Um, I... Elmer, take you. And I have this delicious temptation at times. You think your mind wanders when I speak. Um, my, my mind often wanders when I speak. And so I have this delicious temptation to, to just interrupt Elmer and say, time out here. Now, do you understand, Elmer? Look here, right here. Do you understand what's going on here? Do you understand what you're saying? You get that? You understand what I means in the I take you, and then you understand what the I take, the take means in the take, and, and then you, you get that, you understand that here, you know? And uh, so I have not to date succumbed to that temptation. Um, so let's just pretend all of you are Elmer. And what I want to do is. Uh, just talk about and offer three clarifying truths to this first phrase, I take you. Because, you know, no matter how long you've been married, 
50 weeks or 50 years, I know that these truths exist and I want to offer them to us. And the first is this. Your marriage is being played out in a broken world. That's the first truth. Your marriage, it doesn't doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out, does it? I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that this earth does not function the way God has intended it to function. We, We live in a world that's broken and things just do not and are not operating the way it's meant to be. And every day, that brokenness, to some degree, touches our lives. And if you're married... Every day, that brokenness touches, to some degree, your marriage. Uh, I'm thinking about the couple who gets married, and eight months later, the spouse gets laid off, and all of a sudden, finances are really tight. And the plans for getting into the house, it's just going to take longer, because, because this world's broken. And it wasn't their fault. It was this broken world's spilling over into their relationship. And it's affected them, this brokenness. I'm thinking about the couple who's been married for 20-something years. And life is good. It's sweet. But then the husband gets this debilitating disease that throws the marriage into a new normal situation. And now what? And I'm thinking about some of the unwise and hurtful choices that adult children make and then how that affects their parents, you see. Uh, How would you like to be the parents of the man who shot Representative Giffords in Tucson? I have no idea about their situation. I have no idea. Uh, But the brokenness of... This world and of their son has touched their marriage. And um, I can tell you that our broken world, uh, someone in our broken world, you know, they're they're wondering, well, what did these parents do to produce a child like this? And there's just a lot of hypercritical judgmentalism going on. And and I don't even even know there's... how can I be qualified to render that kind of a judgment, you see? But you understand what's going on here? Marriage is conducted in the brokenness of this world. And call me an old-fashioned preacher, if you will, but it's just sin. It's just called sin. Paul says in Romans three twenty-three: For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this side of the new heavens and the new earth, there's no escaping this brokenness. There isn't. Now the temptation is to assume that because our world is broken, that, well, our, our God is broken. And because this world is out of control, that the God we worship is not in control. But that's not the case at all. The Bible says in Acts chapter 
17, verse 26. From one man he made all the nations, that's God, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. What that means is that God is in charge. Even of our brokenness, there's nothing that's going on in this world that shocks God or catches him off guard. There's nothing to which happens that makes God say, really, I didn't know that. God never says that. And what you and I may see as something senseless is in fact a part of his plan for your life and my life. And we just can't always figure that out because of our limited perspective. And so when the brokenness of this world touches your marriage, it's always for a purpose. It is. Paul David Tripp, who is a, an author and a pastor, and he, he, he's written a wonderful book on marriage uh, that's helped me in this series, and I'd recommend it. Uh, the book is simply titled, What Were You Expecting? I like that title. Um, <laughs> Paul David Tripp says, What you face in this broken world are not irrational troubles. Instead, they're transforming tools. So before the ceremony in which I officiate with, um, with, 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 with Elmer and Ethel, before that ceremony, um, you know, we meet for some uh, premarital, premarital uh, conversations. And I, I appreciate it when couples say, well, I just love him so much. I just love her so much. And he makes me so happy and she makes me happy. I think that's great. It's it, no, no. I mean, I, I mean, call me a cynic. I mean, but I mean, I mean, it is a pleasant courtesy um, to try to make your spouse happy. It is. It's a. It, trying to make your spouse happy is a good goal. Um, it's just not a very big goal. It's not. It's not a very big goal. You see, God's primary plan for your life and for my life and for your marriage and my marriage is not your personal happiness as you define happiness. It's not. God's primary plan for your life and my life and your marriage and my marriage, God's God is in the holiness business. That's his plan. And that's why in uh, first. Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, just, just write this down. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, these have come so that your faith may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. God's in the holiness business, and he wants to use this broken world to change you and change me and develop us and condition us so that we will be seasoned and holy men and women of God. He wants to use your marriage to rescue you from you. He wants to transform you and me and change us 
so that we will be more like Christ. That's truth number one. Okay? Truth number two is this. Broken people marry broken people. Another book I'd recommend uh, as you're thinking through this series is a book by Dave Harvey. It's simply titled, When Sinners Say I Do. Broken people marry broken people. I mean, that ought to go without saying, but how many of us walk into marriage thinking, well, I know my fiance has some rough edges, but I'll help smooth them out. It'll be okay. Sure it will. We, we, we don't take seriously enough we don't take seriously enough not only what the Bible says about our broken world, but the brokenness that exists in each of our hearts. And don't get me wrong, it's not like we wake up in the morning thinking of ways we can detonate the marriage. It, typically, the struggles that most of us have are, are not due to one spouse deliberately trying to make the life of the other miserable. Really. Well, what happens is, is that our lives get affected by the world's brokenness and shortcomings and sin. And then you add to that our own brokenness and shortcomings. And then when we get home, it just spills over into our marriages. And couples who are clueless about the world's brokenness and their brokenness, those very same couples simply come unprepared to deal with the challenges of doing marriage. For example... If I have a bad day at the office, chances are I'm going to bring that home with me. If Sarah has a hard day teaching and she comes home upset, chances are that's going to spill over into our marriage. At some point, you and I are going to display sinful behavior to our spouses it may look like selfishness or anger or resentment or inflexibility. And when that happens, when that happens, you will be tempted and I will be tempted to fight sin with sin. We will be tempted to turn a moment of ministry into a moment of revenge. Because sin makes me want to live for myself. Sin keeps me self-focused, self-serving, self-absorbed, and, and sin is just very antisocial. And there have been days when you know, if Sarah comes home and she's had a bad day teaching, you know, my attitude has been, hey, 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 your bad day is messing up my day, so I'm going to make your bad day worse so that you'll know how it feels. Say, our, our pastor does that? I didn't do it this morning. We drove separately. And <laughs> wh why do you think we expanded the parking lot? No, I'm kidding. But why, you know, why do I fight sin with sin? Well, because I took personally what was never meant to be personal. And I wound up seeing my wife as an opponent and not a partner. And instead of desiring ministry to her, uh, I desired preaching at her. 
so that for the sole reason of me getting back to doing whatever it was I was doing before she came home and messed up my utopic day. And whenever we turn a moment of ministry into a moment of anger or revenge, then we personalize what was never meant to be personal and we view our spouses as adversaries instead of mates. And then that leads us to settle for, for, for quick solutions rather than uncovering the heart of the matter. And what is the heart of the matter? The heart of the matter is that all too often fallen people living in a fallen world have bought into a fallen version of love, a pseudo-love, a make-believe love, a love that really isn't love at all. And, and what kind of love is that? Well, uh, Gary Chapman, who wrote the book um, Five Languages of Love, calls this contract love. Contract love. Contract love says, I will if you will. I will if. And we know all about contracts. My mortgage is a contract, right? The bank says, you know, we will loan you the money so you can live in the house if you pay X amount principal and Y amount interest till the loan's paid off. Contract. It's for a limited period of time. It's, it's conditional upon the continued performance of the contractual obligations of each other. And it's entered into for one's own benefit. Why would I enter into a contract with the bank for the bank's benefit? It's got to be for my benefit. Contract love. And we, it's called contract love because, you know, we, we, we live in a get-it-in-writing society. Because if you can get it in writing, then you'll be able to enforce it. And so we have this contract mentality that just invades marriage, you know? Now, listen, to be fair, healthy marriages have, have dozens of little, you know, unwritten verbal contracts, right? You know, can you pick up the cleaners? I need to pick up the kids. Can you do this errand? I'll do that errand. And it'll help us just kind of navigate marriage more efficiently. Well, that's okay, of course. The problem is, is when we view marriage only as a contract or a series of contracts. And why? And why? Because the, the, the deepest problem with contract marriage is that it bases the strength and stability of the marriage on the ability of those in the marriage not to sin. But we've already said this is a broken world. And broken people marry broken people. And in contract love, you know, if one partner sins deep enough or long enough or shallow enough or short enough, the other partner can just dissolve the union. And, and even if we don't dissolve the union, that this contractual marital love mentality can you know, cause me to have an attitude that'll make the relationship miserable because it's an attitude that says, hey, look, 27 years ago, we made this agreement, and now you've changed. And because you've changed, well, I'm not sure I want to be with you. And, and, and when that happens, love fails. The vow fails. But why did it fail? It failed because we stood in a room in front of witnesses and said, I take you. But what did we mean when we said you? You, the person standing next to me at the altar... You, the person who is a sinner to whom you a sinner said I do? Or you, as in the fantasy spouse I expect you to be? 
You, as in the graven image of gold that I worship more than anything else. You, as in the idol of my heart. And if we're not careful, couples who say, I take you, are really saying, I will make a contract to be married to you as long as you keep my idea the kind of spouse I want you to be. And that, church family, is the vow we must break. And we need to break it because it's not grounded in the kingdom of Christ. It's grounded in the kingdom of self. In the kingdom of self. Truth be told, we are wired to be kingdom lovers. We we are wired to live in the service of one or two kingdoms. We either live for the petite, shrink-wrapped, personal happiness-driven kingdom of self, or we live for the purposes of God's eternal kingdom. And there's always this civil war going on in our souls, in my soul, between wanting what I want in my shrink-wrapped kingdom versus God's majestic eternal kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15 say, for Christ's Love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Did did you hear that? Did you hear how, how crisply the Apostle Paul defines sin? Living for yourself. That's what sin is. Living for yourself. Sin is the addiction to your own kingdom. And when you do that, and when I do that, our world shrivels to the size of our life. Someone put it this way. Sin always shrinks the size of your life to the size of your life. And furthermore, sin causes me to be fiercely loyal to my own kingdom. Fiercely loyal. And here's what I mean by that. Think about the month of January in your marriage. Have you felt frustrated with your spouse? Do you feel frustrated with your spouse any time in January? Angry? Disappointed? Hurt? Upset? Am I the only one? If so, did your anger hurt, frustration, or disappointment? If so... Did that have anything to do with God's kingdom? Did it? In other words, were you distraught, you know, in some way because your spouse violated a law in the kingdom of God? Or did it have anything to do with your kingdom? See, 
most of the conflict that I have in my marriage has nothing to do with Sarah breaking a law in the kingdom of God. I, I don't know what that looks like. I could not tell you the last time my wife broke a law in the kingdom of God. And, 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 then, I, and then, I mean, if I could, I couldn't even tell you when I felt distraught over that. You know, my wife breaking a law in the kingdom of God? Oh, but I'll tell you this much. She's committed felony in the kingdom of Randy. (laughs) And of course, see, someone who possesses that twisted view of reality would also tell you that he has diplomatic immunity in her kingdom. Because I'm a pastor. <laughs> I guess the question that really hit my spirit in this point is... It, it, Do I celebrate God's sovereignty over my spouse or do I try to act sovereignly over my spouse? Have I failed to love Sarah because I've been spending too much time loving myself and my kingdom? Well, the Bible speaks of a better kingdom, a more majestic and splendid kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. And his love that compels us. And it's his kingdom that needs to be the ultimate purpose and aim of mine and every other marriage in this church. Which leads us to the third truth. And it's this. Christian marriage. Christian marriage can only be about Christ's kingdom. (laughs) Marriage cannot be about my kingdom and Christ's. It can only be about Christ. Jesus is not offering a a co-federation here. (laughs) Only one kingdom can rule. Verse 15 says, And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. But for him. For his kingdom. Paul Tripp said, I've become more and more convinced that marriages are fixed vertically before they are ever fixed horizontally. And we have to deal with what's driving us before we ever deal with how we are reacting to one another. And and here's the deal, church. Jesus Christ did not give us his love and grace and mercy. He did not die on the cross. He He was not crucified for sin in order to ease the friction between our competing little kingdoms. He gave us his life to inaugurate a new kingdom and a better kingdom, an eternal kingdom, one that eclipses and outlasts any of our scrubby little fiefdoms. He gave us his grace in order to unshackle the addictive chains to the kingdom of self. And he put us then, having done that, he put us back in this sinful broken world with our brokenness and our spouse's brokenness and then he lets life happen in ways that we would never have thought up on our own when we live for our own kingdom. He does all of this so that we will come to the end of ourselves 
And he does all of this to become the kind of people who find joy in loving others with the love he gave. Because I'll tell you this, Jesus, Jesus' love is not contract love. Jesus' love is covenant love. You see, a contract is for a limited period of time. Jesus' covenant is permanent. A contract is based on, uh, on, on the, the conditional performance Continued performance of the other. Jesus' covenant is about communication. And yes, it's about confrontation. And it's about grace and mercy and forgiveness. And while a contract is entered into for one's own benefit, Jesus' covenant is for the benefit of the other person. See, Christian, Christian marriage? Christian marriage is a covenant that each enters willingly not to manipulate the other person, but to minister to the other person. And in covenant marriage, if both are committed to the other's well-being, then both will benefit. But the motivation is not out of self-gratification, but the giving of oneself for the other's well-being. What I'm trying to say is that contract love says, I will if covenant love says, I will. I will. Now, I can imagine that there may be some pushback in your minds, okay? Some of you may be thinking, okay, well, but, but, but what if I minister to my spouse and what if I'm selfless to my spouse but I don't get it in return? What if they didn't hurt me? You know, I might feel like if I don't keep my spouse on a tight leash, then, you know, I'm worried that she's going to do this or I'm afraid that he might do that. And so, you know, the only way I know how to keep my spouse in line is by contract enforcement and I've got to keep them on a leash. And, and if that's how you feel, then okay, but you must know that there is a word to describe spouses who try to keep other spouses on a contractual love leash. And the word is... Parenting. Parenting is about managing expectations. And if you do that, you will never experience the love and grace and mercy of covenant marital love. And you cannot keep a covenant until you void the contract. Covenant marital love says... What you choose to do with the freedom God has given you is between you and God. And if you run off and do something unwise, I can't control you. You see, in covenant love, both of us can be hurt by one of us. There are no guarantees. There aren't. That's the risk. That's the risk. So let me just ask you some questions here. Um, what kind of love is going on in your relationship right now? Could it be that what you thought was love really wasn't? Could, could, it, could it be that what you've wanted is for your spouse to love you as much as you love you? And could it be that the frustration you feel reveals how fiercely committed you are to your own kingdom? Could it be? And could it be that the troubles you are facing are really transforming tools 
And could it be that the God that you think has abandoned you is really very near? You know that chapter and verse that I quoted from Acts? Acts chapter 17, verse 27 says, God did this so that men would seek... God has acted sovereignly. Why? So that men would seek Him and perhaps reach out to, for Him and find Him, though He is not far from each of us. See, see, maybe you think that the God who has abandoned you, the, the fact is He's really very near. And He's waiting to give you the best gift ever, the gift of transforming grace. Church family, marriage, is, marriage happens in a broken world. Broken people marry broken people. And Christian marriage is ultimately about one kingdom, Christ's. Whose kingdom is shaping your marriage? Well, speaking of Elmer and Ethel... Ethel always had a really long, long nose. In grade school, the kids called her Beaky until she ran into the restroom and cried. And she was about 30 years old when Elmer uh, walked into her life. Elmer himself had a pretty long nose too. Elmer asked her to marry him. She said, of course I'll marry you, Elmer, but what about my nose? What nose? asked Elmer. This was clearly the man for her. <laughs> so she married Elmer, who loved her and never seemed to notice the length of her nose. But Ethel was just not so gracious. Though her own nose had been fully accepted by Elmer, she had over the years begun to feel that Elmer's nose was just too long. And she didn't mind saying so. It's too long, Elmer, said Ethel, looking straight at Elmer's nose. If you would just have it clipped, you'd be a good-looking man. Well, Elmer felt bad, but he trusted Ethel. And every time she said, Elmer, if you would just, well, then she'd tell him something that she thought was good for him. Now, now I mean, she was telling him the plain truth. Uh, his nose was too long. I mean, he could see that. While he was thinking about the nose clip surgery, Elmer recalled their marriage vows. Ethel had told him, Elmer, if you would just say I do, then we would both find real life together filled with happiness. And so Elmer said, I do. And Ethel was half right. Elmer was happy, but Ethel was ill at ease with Elmer. There was just so many things wrong with him. One of the first things Ethel said on their honeymoon was that he snored so loudly she couldn't sleep. Elmer, if you would just have your adenoids out, I could, I, I could sleep at night and I'd truly be happy with you. So Elmer went to the ENT surgeon and had his adenoids taken out. He quit snoring, but Ethel wasn't entirely happy. When Elmer saw Ethel looking at his neck mole, he could have said it before she did. Elmer, if you would just have that mole taken off your neck, well, it wasn't much of a trick. It was just a copay. And presto, no more neck mole. Same thing happened with Elmer's overlapping incisors. Elmer, if you would just... Oh, Ethel, of course, said Elmer, not letting her finish. An oral surgeon finished the task, and Ethel was happy for about a week. And then she'd point out that his tonsils were always infected and probably responsible for his halitosis. Elmer, if you would just... And of course he did. And one afternoon, Elmer was in the basement thinking about who to call regarding the nose clip. And 
Ethel made her way down the rickety steps and found him sitting in a dark corner. And when her eyes finally adjusted to the low light, she saw a crude shelf with a sign over it. It was a sign that said, if you would just. A series of bottles sat on the shelf, labeled with dates and filled with clear solutions. Inside each of the bottles were things like moles and teeth and adenoids and tonsils. And on the last bottle was written, nose tip, all ready to be dated when the surgery was done. Ethel, Elmer hesitated. Well, I, I was about ready to call the plastic surgeon. Why, Elmer? If you would just... And Ethel stopped, and she looked at the sign over the shelf. And suddenly she felt very ashamed. At that moment she realized, if you would just, is a cruel game. So she said, Elmer, if you would just postpone that nose clip. I want to get mine clipped first. But darling, I like your nose just the way it is. Elmer, are you sure? And Elmer stood up and kissed her sweetly on the tip of her long proboscis. <laughs> Ethel, I know how to make our marriage better. And Ethel said, I do too. But go ahead and say it. Ethel, if you would just quit saying, if you would just. <laughs> <laughs> 